sermon text will be 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I invite you to find that place if you have a Bible or to look on with somebody near to you. We'll read the passage in just a moment, but I want to tell you what the passage is aiming at. This is what it is about. It's about putting selfishness to death. And that's a tall order for all of us. It's about putting selfishness to death, but you can't just get rid of the bad. You have to replace it with something else, or selfishness will just creep right back in. So it's about putting selfishness to death and finding true satisfaction somewhere else, outside of yourself. And that somewhere else is actually a someone, and his name is the Lord. So the passage is aiming at that today. It's about putting selfishness to death and finding true satisfaction in God. So let me just ask you a couple of questions before you read the passage, and I think as we read it, you'll see why I have asked on the front end. Where do you go to find personal gratification? To feel right. To feel like you're really alive. Where do you go? Your two options, really all the other options fall under these two. Your two options are either to man you or another one, or to God. And so while the sermon title on the worship guide is Christians, Lawsuits, and the Church, which is no doubt what the passage is about, there's a deeper aim in it, and that's your heart. Well, with that in mind, I invite you to turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let your eyes fall on verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation here. God's voice. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Verse 7. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus 
and in the Spirit of our God. The Word of the Lord. Join me again at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help to consider what He's saying to us in this passage. Father, I ask that You would make me a weapon of the Holy Spirit now to say what You have said. And that You would show us from this passage what full surrender to Jesus looks like in each one of our lives. Show it to us, Lord. Full surrender. Full surrender. Full surrender, Lord Jesus. And by Your Holy Spirit, would You reveal to us the satisfaction that can be found in You alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage works this way. It goes from selfishness to satisfied. But there's a bridge between those two. In verses 1-6, to it's really about selfishness. In verses 9-11, through it's about satisfaction. But the bridge between selfishness and satisfied, and it's not only the way this passage works, it's the way all of life works. The bridge between selfishness, 1 to 6, and satisfied, 9 to 11, is surrender, verses 7 and 8. So let me just give you the application of the sermon right now. It's what I'm going to say to you at the end. The application is Are you fully surrendered to Christ? Are you? Let's ask it negatively. In what ways or what areas are you not fully surrendered to Christ? Paul mentions no words in the final passage and he just says it plainly. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the application is this. If you're trying to walk the tightrope between selfish and satisfied, and that tightrope is your works, how you're going to get to God by your good behavior, or using other people to get more in this life, whatever tightrope you may be walking in your selfishness to try to be satisfied, if that bridge is not full surrender to Jesus, you'll never be satisfied. John Calvin wrote about this passage. Paul here begins to reprove another fault among the Christians. Reprove means call them out. He had just dealt with a previous fault, didn't he? The passage we looked at last week, that is tolerating sexual immorality in the church. But here he's dealing with another fault, and Calvin says it's, quote, an excessive fondness, a love for litigation, which took its rise from, here's an old word, avarice. That means being extremely greedy for wealth or material gain. See, that's the heart thing. I'm a greedy person. I want stuff, and I'm going to use you to get it. Calvin goes on, now this reproof consists of two parts. Verses 1-6 to show us that by bringing their disputes before the tribunals, the courtroom of the wicked, they by this means made the gospel contemptible. People in the world didn't want any part of Jesus because the Christians are fighting with each other so much. And they exposed Christ and His gospel, Calvin says, to derision. People were actually scorning the gospel because of the way the Christians were living. And the second thing, Calvin points out, verses 7 to 8, is while they ought to, the Christians ought to endure 
personal injuries to their pride with patience. They instead inflicted injury upon others, their brothers and sisters, rather than allowing themselves to be subjected to inconveniences. We're going to touch on those two issues and Lord willing, cross the bridge of surrender into the land of satisfaction in verses 9-11. through Let's just take them one at a time. Verses 1-6 to is about selfishness. Now if I elaborated on that selfishness in this passage, it's particularly this. Selfishly bringing shame on the Gospel. That's the issue. That's verses 1-6. to Their selfishness was of such a nature and had such expressions that they were okay bringing scorn on the name of Jesus. There's two parts to verses 1-6. to The first is the sad situation in the church at Corinth, and the second is the saint's jurisdiction in God's kingdom. Look at verse 1 and verse 6 to just see the sad situation in the church at Corinth. This is sad. Verse 1, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? That's a rhetorical, how dare you? Do you see the word dare? Dare to go to law before the unrighteous. How dare you? Again, verse 4, before we get to 6, look at the end of verse 4, 4b. Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? And again, verse 6, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. What Paul's saying to him is that this is not really a courtroom issue. It's not for the civil courts to figure out. The kinds of things you're squabbling about and you're so litigious and on a hair trigger ready to sue somebody because you think you've been wronged, this is a matter that could be solved as a family matter inside the house with the family, among the saints. Calvin again said this opening paragraph deals with the fact that the Corinthians' pattern of taking their disputes before wicked judges, Calvin says, made the gospel contemptible and exposed it to derision. That's what Paul's dealing with. You see it in verse 1, they're going to court with each other, right? When you have a case against your neighbor, do you dare to go to law before the unrighteous. Some translations don't put it exactly the way I just read it from the New American Standard. Some translations put, how dare you? How, how dare you take each other to court before unbelievers to settle your disputes? Now, the key question is, what direction does that offense flow? Is Paul offended? How dare you? Is Paul bowing up on the Corinthians? How dare you? What direction does this offense flow? Paul's not the offended party. God is. How dare you? Paul sees injury done to the name of Jesus in the Corinthian community by the people of Christ. The key question is, what direction does this offense flow? When Paul says, how dare you, it's not because he's offended, it's because God is offended. A translator from the 1600s named Bingel said, it's by this grand word, dare, 
that Paul marks the injured majesty of the Christian name. Let me just illustrate it for you in your mind's eye. Try to picture the movie scene. The Christians in Corinth were okay to grab the name of Jesus like a shirt from their closet, pick it up, and instead of putting it on, drag the name of Jesus through the mud and the sewer troughs of the city of Corinth. Before the eyes of unbelievers, the church was adding reasons why their fellow men in their city should not believe the Gospel. Are you okay with that yourself? There was a pattern taking place in the church that was bringing shame upon the Gospel of Christ among the unbelievers in the community. And as some have called it, the church was actually becoming a reverse witness in the community. Stacking up reasons that people should not come to Christ. Isn't it sad? That's why I call it the sad situation in Corinth. Isn't it sad when one of the greatest obstacles to the Christian witness in the world is Christians who live like the world? It's so sad. Which is why we're unashamedly not trying to be more like the world to win the world. That's not how the church has ever advanced the cause of Christ in any generation. We're an alternate universe. We're a kingdom inside of a pagan kingdom where Christ reigns as Lord and His Word dominates everything and His Spirit is to saturate our hearts in the ways that we relate to each other. The Corinthians were just like the world. One of the saddest verses in the whole Bible comes through the pen of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah, speaking on behalf of Israel, says to God in the latter chapters of his prophecy, we have become just like those over whom you never ruled. We look just like the world. This passage does raise a host of good questions though, doesn't it? Now if you read the passage halfway carefully, you and many others would have questions that sound something like this. Is Paul saying that Christians are not to appeal to the public courts at all? The secular court system. The legal system. To that, the answer is very simple. No. Paul is not saying that you should not use the secular courts at all. In fact, Charles Hodge pointed it out very clearly that in Paul's own life, you can look at the book of Acts and see that Paul himself appealed to Caesar when he was on trial for his life. In the book of Romans, Paul clearly teaches in chapter 13 that it is God who has ordained human governments, including the legal systems, as an expression of his common grace in a fallen world. So I think John Calvin got it right 500 plus years ago. When he wrote, Paul does not here condemn those who from necessity have a cause to go before unbelieving judges, but he does condemn those who of their own accord 
bring their brothers into a situation in order to harass them, as it were, through means of unbelievers, while it was in their power in the first place to employ another remedy. It is wrong, Calvin concludes from this text, to institute of one's own accord a lawsuit against your brother before unbelieving judges when it could have been settled in the house of God. I believe that's precisely the way this text works. Does that make sense to you? If as a Christian you've been wronged by your brother in Christ, sibling, brother or sister, your default response ought not be, how can I leverage the system, especially unbelievers in the system, who think with carnal reasoning already to help me litigate this wrong? If your first thought when you're wronged by a fellow Christian is how can a lost person help me figure out what rights I'm entitled to, then I do believe Paul is suggesting that you might not need to be checking the list of phone numbers for local lawyers. Rather, you need to be checking with God about the validity of your own salvation. Let me be clear. Paul is talking about issues that fall into what we would call today, they didn't have this in Paul's day, but what we would call today, small claims court. He's not talking about the big stuff. There are criminal, sinful issues that that are of such a nature that your first response, biblically, upon learning of these allegations, ought not to be call your pastor but call the police. For example, any form of child abuse ought to be reported reported to the authorities immediately. Any form of sexual abuse reported to the authorities immediately. Those matters are to be dealt with outside the church in addition to church discipline. For they're far beyond the scope of what Paul's dealing with in this chapter. Schreiner said, the Corinthians' lawsuits were not criminal cases such as murder, rape, or theft, but the kind of minor matters that led to litigation. Paul argues that they should have handled such minor disputes inside the church since believers will, as we're about to see, judge the world. Paul even uses the word small in verse 2. He says... Do you not, can you not, are you not adequate to constitute, quote, the smallest law courts? That's the kind of stuff he's talking about. He's not talking about murder and assault and abuse. That's precisely why God has delegated the sword to human government in Romans 13. Paul himself, as I said a moment ago, appealed to the Roman courts more than once. He did it in Acts 16, and he did it again in Acts 25. He used the legal system appropriately. To Paul, the sad situation in Corinth, which is our first sub-point under their selfishness, was that the church members were selfishly taking their brothers to court over minor issues before what verse 1 calls the unrighteous. You see that word? Unrighteous. Verse 1. That's a big issue in this chapter, as we're going to see again in verse 11, uh, 9 through 11. Unrighteous. It's the Greek word to make something negative in the Greek, you just put the letter A in front of it. It's the alpha privative. Righteousness, dikaosune. 
Unrighteousness? Ah, dikaiosune. Unrighteous. I'm telling you that because Paul is saying these people don't think with righteous judgments. They're not thinking about the gospel. They're thinking unrighteously, even in the system, and you know it. You're going to them not because you think the system will work for you, but because you know the people in the system. And Corinth, by the way, was notorious for allowing the wealthy to extort the poor. You could use the system. And Paul knew that the people in the church had been reared in that culture and were continuing in that pagan thought pattern. How can I use unrighteous people who don't think in accord with the gospel to extort my brother? It's so sad. Verse 7 points out that this is, quote, already a defeat for you. You lost the case before it ever went to the courtroom. The plaintiff might have won. They might have been awarded whatever they were suing for. But Paul's question is, what did you lose in the process? They lost the reputation of Christ in their community. They lost the opportunity to display the power of the Gospel in the church. More on that when we get to the latter verses. But second, not only under, under number one, their selfishness, the sad situation, they're taking each other to court before ungodly people, and they're doing it to harass their brothers. But verses two to five tell us not only about that sad situation in Corinth, but it speaks positively about the saints' jurisdiction in God's kingdom. Do you see these two little phrases? They come by way of rhetorical question, verse two and verse three. Do you not know, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know, verse 3, that we will judge angels? So what is the saints' jurisdiction in God's kingdom? There are two realms dealt with in these two rhetorical questions that tell us what the saints are to judge. One, we're to judge the material realm, that is, the world, verse 2, and we're to judge the spiritual realm, that is, angels, verse 3. Now, is Paul using hyperbole? That's an exaggerated statement, making a claim that's not meant to be taken literally, like, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, there's no elephant. Is Paul just speaking in that kind of exaggerated way? Hey, you're going to judge the whole world. You're going to judge all the angels. Can't you handle the small issues? It's not hyperbole. It is ironic because the Corinthians boasted of their wisdom. Anybody here for sermons on chapters 1 through 4? <laughs> they thought they were the wisest of the wise. They boasted of their wisdom. So Paul wonders in verse 5, hmm, is there not then one wise man among you who's able to judge between his brethren? This is ironic, isn't it? They can't find one wise person in the church to handle these little small claims court issues while they boast of being wise. Meanwhile, Paul says positively, you're going to judge the whole material matter, the world, and you're going to judge the whole spiritual realm, the angels. It is ironic. The saints will judge the material world. Before we move from point number one, selfishness, look at this in verse two. The saints at Corinth are 
failing to remember that the unrighteous judges, that's verse 1, to whom they are appealing for their disputes in the church, will actually be judged by the people in the church one day. The unrighteous judges are part of the world that the, that the saints will judge. You're going to judge the people to whom you're appealing for judgment. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? This is a radically biblical concept. Daniel chapter 7 speaks about it. You could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and look at the last chapters of the Bible, the new heavens and the new earth where the saints are reigning with Christ. You can see us seated in the heavenlies with Christ and everything's under the feet of Jesus and it's all been subjected like an ottoman that he props his feet up on and we're going to be judging with him in righteous judgment. That's just a radically biblical concept. Paul's apologetic argument for why you should not sue your fellow brother or sister over matters that can be handled, quote, in the church, verse 4, is not because we're an exclusive club that does not interact with lost people. You just got to go back one paragraph in chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, to say you don't separate yourself from lost people. But it is because we will judge the world. To put it in Gordon Fee's words on this passage, it's because Christians are, here's your big word for today, an eschatological people. That clears it up for everybody, right? Okay, I'll never sue anybody. I'm eschatological. What does that mean? Chapter 5, verse 12. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? See, Paul in chapter 5, verse 12, is dealing with present judgment. In chapter 6, verse 2, you will judge the world. He's dealing with future judgment. That's what I mean by eschatological. We're, we're an end times people who, who will be involved with our God in the final judgments on the world. Now, isn't this astonishing? The triune God is going to lean over from the bench and say, what do you saints think I should do with all these people who have trampled under their feet the blood of my son? What do you think I should do with all these unrighteous people? And I'm role-playing. The conversation won't play out like this, no doubt. But because when that interaction happens, you will be glorified. You won't have a sin nature. You won't think in any way that's unrighteous. All you will care about is the glory due unto God. And whatever our response is, based on your character and your holiness and the honor due unto your Son and the worship they never gave you which you rightfully deserved, and for them not shining back to you like the moon to the sun, the glory that belongs to you alone, not to them, O oh Lord, not to them, but to your name be the glory, we all believe that you should condemn them. God is going to include us in His conference about the judgment of the world? If that's true, don't you think you might be able to handle a little small claims court inside the church? In chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, they're judging Paul. But Paul says, it's a very small thing to me that I would be judged by you or by any human court. 
In chapter 1, verse 12, they're judging their favorite preachers. In chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, where we're at now, they're taking their judgments to the pagan courts. But Paul's saying to them, why don't you just wake up? Wake up, sleeper, like he wrote to the Ephesians. Live in light of eternity. You are an eschatological people. The eternal realities were more real for Paul than the present day. Heaven had colored everything for Paul. But the Corinthians were living as if today was all they had to enjoy. And because of that, they had to get their stuff now. Look, if there is no heaven, and if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we are the most foolish people on the planet. What are we doing here? If the dead are not raised, the Bible actually tells us what to do. 1 Corinthians 15.32 Eat, drink, because tomorrow you will die. You better get as much as you can now if this whole gospel thing is not true. But if it is, and if Jesus did rise from the dead, and He did inaugurate the end of the age, and even now in this present evil age, His kingdom is breaking in through the salvation of souls and the clustering of them into communities of faith called local churches. And one day, what He is leavening the earth with now will fully contaminate the entire universe. If the Garden of Eden will one day stretch its vines and its roots throughout the entirety of all created space, then don't live for today. Live for the age to come. The saints will judge the material world, but will also judge the spiritual realm. This is verse 3, I believe. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Verse 3. In addition to the realm of the believer's judgment being the material, here it's obviously the spiritual, the angelic. But if I look at all the corresponding passages about angels and their being called to an account, the only thing I can find in Scripture is referring to the fallen angels, the demons. I find that in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. I find that in Jude, verse 6. I find that in a difficult passage in the early chapters of Isaiah. Jude, verse 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode, God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Demons. Demons, you know, weren't created demonic. They're a percentage of the angelic that fell with Lucifer. And whatever number that is, is fixed. No more are falling. There was one rebellion. It happened in mass with Lucifer under his leadership. And though those things are mysterious to us, and the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it, it says some things, we know this. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I think this might be one of the most important sentences for you to listen to. This is what we know about the demons. Jesus did not die for them. They'll never be saved. They'll never be redeemed. 
they and all the minions with them, and Satan, their depraved head, will be forever judged in a lake of fire. And Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, you're worried about somebody that might have stole your riding lawnmower, right? Got a small claims court issue here. I want you to think about this. There's coming an age when you're going to be held in conference with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit concerning what to do with all the reprobate humans who wouldn't entrust themselves to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises. You're going to judge the world. You're going to judge all those unrighteous judges. But you're also going to judge all those demons who rebelled against God. And God's going to lean over to you. He already knows the answer. But He wants to involve you and say, what do you think we ought to do with them? What do you think we ought to do with them? And we might respond rhetorically. Did Jesus die for them? The answer is, you're taking your brothers to court. You're taking the people for whom Jesus died to court because you're so selfish, you don't care if they're destroyed and the gospel is disregarded in your community. The point is this, if you're going to join God in judgment over the material and the spiritual realms, then surely, surely, you can sort out some minor issues in the church. But the problem is that the Corinthians were so selfish that they couldn't see the injury that they were doing not only to their brothers, but to the name of their sovereign, their Savior, their Jesus and how the community was looking at them while they were in line with them going to the courtroom and whispering to each other about all the reasons that they'd never give their life to that Jesus. What about your way of life is bringing injury to the name of Christ? What is it about my life and yours that lost people look at and say, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want to have anything to do with it. They were so selfish, they didn't even care. But number two, and the only pathway between selfishness and satisfaction, is absolute surrender to Christ. This is the hardest part of the passage, and it's the shortest. Verses 7 and 8. Selfishness only gets dealt with, only gets dealt with in the arena of absolute surrender to Jesus. Verse 7. Actually, then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. This whole matter in this this text, it's not a courtroom issue. It's a heart issue. You know how it works. You don't even need this passage to tell you how it works because you and I live in this domain all the time. When your heart is entangled around your stuff, then your world crumbles if somebody takes it from you. You might say, Jesus, Jesus, but we will know your idols and you will know mine when somebody touches them. And if somebody takes your stuff from you, and your world falls apart, you found out what your God is no matter what songs you might sing. 
The greatest treasure the Christian has can never be taken from us. If you take everything away from a true Christian, in the most ultimate and real sense, he still has everything. If you give everything to a non-Christian, ultimately, he has nothing. Do you see the piercing questions and why I would say it's the most difficult part of the passage in verse 7? They're not rhetorical. (laughs) Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? The word rather means prefer. Want. Why don't you want to be wronged? Why don't you want to be defrauded? May I make an open confession in front of you? I don't want that. I cannot want it. I can't make myself want to be wronged. I cannot make myself want to be defrauded. This requires a miracle. This requires supernatural intervention from God on your heart. You can't want it by yourself. Now, my old man doesn't want it. But when I look, and I see standing beside me the King of the universe being wronged, being defrauded. When I see Jesus of Nazareth getting the cat of nine tails ripped out of his back and being wronged, When I see the saliva dripping down his face after the men spat on him. When I see them taking his clothes off of him so that they can pat down real nicely that purple robe into his lacerated flesh and he's being defrauded. And in response to that, he doesn't wrong anybody. And he never has. He never defrauded anybody. And he wanted it. He wanted the wrong that you and I deserve to fall to him. He wanted the fraudulent issue not to be pressed upon me or you, but on him. And when I see something of who he is, and I see something of what he's done, and how he responded to being wronged and defrauded, then... By the Spirit of God, I can want, I can actually desire by God's doing and not my own to grab God's wrist with both of my hands and help Him plunge the dagger into my pride. Welcome the wounding of your pride. Why don't you want to be wrong? Why don't you want to be defrauded? It's not about your lawnmower. It's about your heart. Do you want to be like Jesus? And how much do you want to be like Him? That's why I say there's only one way. There's only one bridge between selfishness and satisfied. It's not getting more stuff from your neighbor. It's not winning more suits in the courtroom. The only way between selfishness and satisfied 
is to die to your old man. To be crucified with Christ. To have Christ Jesus who was wronged without wronging in return. Who was defrauded without defrauding anybody ever of anything. Taking up residence in your heart. It's not you. It's not you that wants to be wronged. It's not you that wants to be defrauded. It's Christ in you. It's Christ in you. It's Jesus taking up residence in your life where you care about eternal things more than you care about anything else, all the temporal things included. That's why Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why the Puritans talked about all the time, Amy Carmichael has a poem about it, Jesus has run away to heaven with my heart. I want to stress this issue in chapter 6 is not about hoarding. It's not a hoarding issue. It's a heart issue. Someone in the crowd, Jesus said, uh, someone came to Jesus in a crowd and said to Him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then Jesus said to them, You see the change? Then Jesus said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus concludes. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And Jesus finishes the entire thought with this statement. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When we reign with Christ, judge the world, judge the angels, which is already, in Paul's mind, a reality, the end was more concrete for Paul than the pavement in the city of Corinth. God is more present in this room than the chair on which you sit. God was more real to the Apostle Paul than anything or anybody else. And though he wanted their approval, and though he had a sin nature just like you and me, and we're all tempted to love the applause of man, 
And though he had probably an involuntary reaction against their displeasure, just like we all have, we want people to like us, we fear man, that's a shorthand for everything I've just said, and it's true about me as well, but for the Apostle Paul, yes, he feared man, he just feared God more. And believers, believers are to so live with eternity in view that we are set free from the love of stuff. We're set free from the love of money. And instead of being subject to the stuff that's already been put under the feet of our risen Lord Jesus, all things are already in subjection under His feet, Hebrews chapter 2, Instead of being subject to the stuff that's already under the feet of Jesus, we're subject to Jesus under whose feet is all the stuff. Paul wanted the Corinthians to see that the unrighteous judges didn't care about the right stuff. Believers care about the reputation of Jesus. This is what I mean by saying absolute surrender is the only bridge between selfishness and satisfied. Absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. Where you can say by the Spirit of God and not your own willpower, you would rather be wronged like Jesus was, you would rather be defrauded like Jesus was, than to ruin the reputation of Christ in your community or harass your brother or sister in Christ. When I say surrender is the only bridge, I mean it's the only remedy to the sin of selfishness. Surrender means all your rights are gone. You don't have any rights. They're gone. This very same letter is going to tell us a few chapters from now that you've been, pardon me, at the end of this chapter, you have already been bought with a price. That means somebody owns you. Your rights are gone. You have been bought with a price, therefore you are to seek to live for His glory, that is God's glory alone. There's no longer room in your life anywhere, no corner of your heart, no cellar, no back closet. There is no bonus room above the garage. There is no place in your heart that is not fully surrendered to Jesus. You yourselves, you yourselves, instead of preferring to be wronged and defrauded, what does he say in verse 8? You wrong. And you defraud. And you do it even to your brethren. That's not the Christ life. It's not teaching us to become a doormat, by the way, for others just to trample on and walk all over and take all our stuff and we never say anything about it. That's not what Paul is saying. He's talking about a depth of surrender, though, that you cannot manufacture in your own power. Becoming a Christian is not saying, "Uh uh-huh, to the right questions. You believe in Jesus? Uh Uh-huh. Believe He died on the cross? Uh Uh-huh. Believe He rose again? Uh Uh-huh. That's not how you become a Christian. What Paul's saying is there's a depth of surrender in you that you can't produce by your own power. And the way to get from here to there is to abandon yourself to the Almighty. All of you to all of Him. And if you don't want to give Jesus all of you, I have Nothing to offer you here at this church. All of you. The hymn writers write things that are so beautiful about this. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned. That great hymn ends with this line. Since from His bounty I've received 
such proofs of love divine. Had I a thousand hearts to give, Lord, they would all be Thine. Full surrender. It's been said many times that you don't see too many U-Haul trailers being pulled behind people's hearses on the way to the cemetery. But the Corinthians had their heart entangled around their stuff and not their Savior. Full surrender. Full surrender. Are you fully surrendered to Christ? Fully surrendered to Christ. In what ways are you not surrendered to Him? What areas? Now would be a great time for you just to get saved. For you to just say to Jesus, You can have all of me. You gave me all of you. You can have all of me. Right now would be a great time to say, your blood for my sin? Your death for my crime? You being wronged for what I should have gone to court for in front of God? You being defrauded? You getting stuff stolen from you by me, but you paying the debt? Now would be a great time to throw yourself into the arms of that Jesus who no longer is dead but has risen and reigns forevermore and His arms are wide open for you. If, if, if. Now Jesus told you this. Get your calculator out. It's foolish for a man, Jesus said, to start building a house before he sits down at a table with a calculator and counts the cost. How much will it cost me? If you get halfway done and you never finish that house, everybody's going to think you're a fool. And Jesus said in the same way, get your calculator out And count the cost. Do you want His salvation? And oh, how I pray you will want His salvation. But here's your calculator. It costs you everything. All of you to all of Him forever. No lines drawn in the sand. And oh, now would be a great time. I know all of you are worried that I haven't gotten to the third point and uh, we're already at this juncture of the service. But I want to tell you that satisfied is really all I need to say. Selfishness will never satisfy you. Ever. There's never enough. You can't get enough of your carnal desire to ever feel full. But if you'll surrender to Jesus, you'll be satisfied. That's the way the passage works, and it's in verses 9-11. through Look at it with me. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Some have wondered what the connection is between verses 1-8 to Verses 9-11. through I think if you'll look at it together in context, you'll see a powerful connection. Selfishness 1-6. to Surrender 7-8. and Satisfied 9-11. to There's 11 things listed in this vice list. Paul does that in many other passages. A list of vices. The first one is really the umbrella over all of them. And it's in verse 9. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you remember that word? A-dekai-osune. You're going to the unrighteous judges. 
but unrighteous people, they'll never get in God's kingdom. And in verse 11, he says, some of you were like that. And he lists out ten expressions of vice and sinfulness. In verse 9, a person whose God, whose idol, is his sexual glands. And oh my goodness, do we not live in this day now. Where fornication has no barriers and no parameters. There's no walls. There's no fences. Do whatever feels good, whenever you want to, however often you want to, with whomever you want to. That's verse 9. Their God is their sexual glands, therefore they're fornicators. Now doesn't that seem satisfying? You get all the sexual gratification you can possibly get from now till the day you die. Wouldn't that person be satisfied? If Hugh Hefner could come back from the grave for one day, I promise you that he would tell you how empty a soul he is. Fornicators, to the pagan... Verse 9, whose new, new favorite idol, whatever it is, it changes with every season, the idolaters. It seems like the new thing will finally quench the longing of my heart. You see, these people are aiming at satisfaction. The fornicators want sexual gratification. The idolater want heart satisfaction. To the person who's addicted to self-centered adrenaline that uses others for personal gratification called adultery in verse 9. Nobody committing adultery loves anybody. They lust people. They don't love people. They lust people. They love themselves. They lust people. That's verse 9. But they think just one more partner, one more secret relationship, one more pump of adrenaline through my veins that I'm doing something and getting away with it seems alluring to the person who flaunts themselves as a sex object in verse 9. They're effeminate. Who engages in homosexual behavior, verse 9. Those distorted desires and uses of the human body may appear gratifying in the moment. And I'm not arguing that people wouldn't say that they're not gratifying. But I did say in the moment. For a moment. Similarly, those who gain by stealing in verse 10. Those who take, uh, pardon me, do not take by, by theft, but they just desire everybody else's stuff. So they start hating the people because they love their stuff. That's covetousness, verse 10. Or who imbibe in alcohol as an escape from reality. I think that's verse 9. Who use their tongue to speak to destroy other humans with their words. Verse 10, they're slanderers. They deceptively cheat. They're con artists. And they use other people for selfish gain. They're swindlers. Verse 10. What's the common denominator of this vice list? All of them think that their thing is going to satisfy them. More sex. More stuff. More using of people so that I can feel better about myself. It all seems satisfying. That's why they do it. It's the motivating principle. It's the engine in the car. But in the end, they're all bankrupt. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit, verse 10, the kingdom of God. I almost titled the section of the sermon, You Don't Want God to Sue You, Do You? That's how it connects to the first part of the passage. That didn't alliterate as nicely as selfish, surrender, and satisfied. So, here's what Paul's saying. The satisfied heart is the heart that boasts in Christ for God's salvation all the way to glory. 
Paul's reminding the Corinthians in this passage that they were all criminals before God. He could have taken all of them to court. They had all stolen from His glory. They had all extorted from His kingdom. They had all taken breath from the lungs that He gave them and the air that He put in them and used it as idolaters. He could have sued every one of them. They were all sexually deviant. Every one of them had committed lust in their mind and broken God's commandments. But instead of them... He took His Son to court. Jesus paid that price. As we said before, God turned the courtroom for us in all of our guilt, which was plastered over all the walls for everybody to see. God turned the courtroom of our crime against God into an adoption ceremony where He brought us up to His bench and put us in His lap and said, You are my son. You are my daughter. He killed His enemies with kindness. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. The fact that He didn't give you what you deserve, the courtroom, is the whole reason that your heart melted in front of Him. When you saw that you broke His law, those who are Christians know what I'm talking about. When you saw that you broke His law, when you saw that you were the criminal in God's courtroom and that He's the judge on the throne, but instead of condemning you, He condemned His Son in the flesh so that there would be no condemnation for you and ultimately no separation from you from His love. That law revealed your need for a Savior and that we cannot save ourselves, but it was His kindness. It was His mercy. It was the fact that He didn't give us what we deserved. It was His patience that melted our heart of stone and led us into His loving arms so that we don't tremble when we call Him Abba. If you want a more detailed and dedicated treatment of verses 9-11, through 11, I preached an hour and 20 minute sermon called Heaven and Homosexuality here back in May of 2014 that uh, you can listen if that is of interest to you. But for today's purpose, I just want to draw up past tense. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And now look at the Trinity. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Wash clean from your rebellion. Sanctified. That is not the ongoing work of being made like Christ, but as Paul's used it earlier in this book, like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Jesus is our sanctification. That is, we are cloaked and clothed in the righteousness of God in Christ. Justified, we are declared right in God's courtroom. This is where true satisfaction comes from. To be washed in God's sight. To be sanctified in Christ. To be justified before our God because of Jesus and what He's done. This is where satisfaction comes from. True satisfaction. No longer needing carnal means, but rather drawing from Christ in His fullness for the rest of our life. Our completeness is found in Him and in Him alone. Now I want to say a final word to those who are still not Christians. And I do pray that some of you were born again just a few moments ago. But if you're still not a Christian, one more word for you. The Gospel, the good news, what Jesus has done for us in His death, burial, and resurrection to set us free from our guilt before God and to clothe us with His righteousness so that we can be acceptable to God forever, brought into His family. 
the gospel, the gospel is only for the guilty. That's the irony of this text. You're taking people to court because you think they're guilty. They probably are. But why don't you want to be wronged? Because you've never seen wrong done. You've never really seen the wrong done to the only innocent man who's ever lived. There's only one. There's only one innocent. And if you realize that you're guilty and you broke God's law and you deserve God's courtroom and God's judgment and God's sentencing and God's condemnation, if you actually believe that, oh, do I have good news for you. The Gospel's only for the guilty. It's not for the good. It's for the rebel. It's for the sinner. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's it. And if you'll throw yourself into the arms of Jesus, He'll save you forever. The only bridge, the only bridge, God has nuked all the other ones. There are no more left. The only bridge between selfish and satisfied is not more of what you thought you want, but surrender to Jesus. That's it. And there's no other bridge. So what about you? How is it with you and God? Are you fully surrendered to Jesus? Let's pray together.